It was um, found to be a mutilated bat carcass or something. Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to another New Year's Day, uh, was it New Year's Eve, special edition of The Mind Renewed. Uh, last year we were very privileged, indeed awesomely privileged, to be joined on the programme by the Fireside Nephilim Boys of Like Flint Radio. And again this year they have kindly agreed to join us for the Fireside Nephilim Boys Reloaded. And uh, I suppose a little bit of explanation is necessary for those of you who did not catch last year's programme. The Nephilim Boys are a multinational think tank affiliated (laughs) to Like Flint Radio, but they are in fact more than that. They are also, well, I was going to say a secret society, but I guess they're a semi-secret society because I'm telling you all about them, so they can't be a secret society. (laughs) And uh, I understand that their ambitions are nothing less than world domination, which they are steadily achieving, according to an intelligence expert whose name I cannot reveal. (laughs) And so our guests are Frank Johnson from the US, recognisable from the uh, TMR schedule page as the one wearing the Spider-Man hoodie. (laughs) Cliff Garner, also from the US, Mm -hmm. recognisable from last year's show as the expert in cake tasting. (laughs) And uh, GK, Garth Kennedy from Australia recognisable by his own admission from being upside down most of the time and I'm hoping that we should be joined by Cruzy from South Africa at some point though I'm not quite sure whether we will but it could happen at any moment it would be great if he does turn up gentlemen, welcome back to TMR Thanks Julian Yeah, Thanks for having us back Great pleasure. Yeah, uh, Thanks for going out on limb again Julian uh, truly appreciate it Glad that you can all come back on the show and we had a, this as far as I'm concerned anyway we had a great time last year yes. and I'm hoping that this time it will be equally enjoyable and I suppose I could say how are you all doing but then if, I guess you'd all speak at the same time so I'm going to have to speak to you <laughs> one at a time so um, <laughs> let's start with Frank how have you been keeping over the last 12 months? Uh, it's been alright uh, ups and downs um, I haven't blogged much in the last year I've just mostly been showing up randomly in interviews with people so uh, a little relaxing not having to do so much research but <laughs> you've celebrated is it your 600th Facebook profile image update this year oh we're past that now <laughs> I think we're up in the 700s by now uh-huh. yeah. well, I have to say it's very funny I think last time I checked it was like 718 and that was about 30 pictures ago so. <laughs> do you do that most days change that profile image almost every day I've kept the guy I have today um, for a couple of days now because I, I don't know I just really like that guy so it's almost worth following you for that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I find it very amusing. Um, some time ago, you put up a, I don't know who he is, um, a chap who's got this big smile on his face and carrying balloons. Um, I call him Mr. Flowers. Who is that? <laughs> oh, that's a, oh, that's Richard Simmons. He was really big here in the like, 80s and 90s, and mostly in the 80s and maybe earlier 
he was like a, a fitness guru and he'd always be on the TV <laughs> right. and he's like really high energy and like just like sounds like the nicest guy you'd ever meet or whatever. <laughs> and he'd always show up on talk shows and different TV shows and like uh, just show people how to do exercise and he'd have commercials like his big thing was like um, what was it one was deal a meal where you like use this thing to keep track of your meals and portions and stuff but it, it was kind of like a game or something so like maintain your weight portions and then sweat into the oldies was like his other big one so he'd have all these uh-huh. oldies songs on like a videotape you could watch <laughs> and you know you'd do the exercises with him and whoever else was in the studio <laughs> sounds a bit like andy kaufman to be but i suppose it's not quite <laughs> bad, <is> it? <laughs> yeah he's been in seclusion actually for the last couple of months people think like his maid abducted him or something but he actually just wanted to be um, wanted to just have some time alone you know um okay. other people at the gossip papers were saying he was transitioning from a man to a woman so i'm not sure which one is true if any of them so okay. um, oh, <laughs> so that's just one of my profile <laughs> you, pictures. you've managed to find some amazing pictures of him i have to say indeed and you also bring up uh, mm-hmm. the same photo of jeff goldblum every day i mean thank you very much for reposting that it's so good <laughs> Oh, no problem. I, I'm, I'm sure some of them have been um, disappointments, but, uh, you know, every once in a while, a good one slips in there. So, <laughs> And um, you write for Ancient Aliens Debunked, don't you, Chris White? So yeah. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Oh, it's been a few years since Chris put out the movie, but um, I think around the time he was getting the movie ready, he wanted someone to do some blogs about ancient aliens theories and to just debunk different stuff that's out there. Um, he actually gave me a lot of homework of things he wanted debunked that I have never gotten around to yet. But <laughs> yeah, so I've kind of taken this year off of blogging, but I've done some interviews with GK and Guy Malone and now, uh, now the Nephilim boys. So Yeah, and you're coming on TMR to talk about ancient aliens, hopefully in the next few months. That'd be great. Yeah, sure. Look forward to speaking to you about that. Smashing. Well, I'm trying to bring myself to watch some of these programs. It's hard going at times. (laughs) I've been the right frame of mind. Um, Cliff, last year you were at Denny's sampling the delights of the confectionery there. Um, Mm -hmm. What are you actually eating today? Well, I got a cheesecake in the fridge. Uh, Mom made it. Uh (laughs) So... Yeah, I'm I'm missing Denny's. Uh, the one that I was going to, uh, for the most part, and the one where we recorded at, has closed down. Oh. The uh, landlord didn't want to renew the lease for some reason, even though it's been there for decades. Mm. Uh, I miss it. Yeah. But there's another one on the other end of town, and there's a few other places uh, comparable. I'm, I've been working at a university uh, part-time, Decatur, Illinois. There's a Perkins over there. You're probably not familiar with them no. either, but they are, no. they're, they're, they're kind of like Denny's. Uh, they're, oh, they, they make great pies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're uh, speaking from home today, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah. Well, the weather here is very bad. Uh, we got hit with kind of a minor ice storm yesterday. It's raining here. And it's really cold where you are, but then where mm-hmm. GK is, I think they've got a bit of a heat wave. So it's a very strange oh, weather yeah, map yeah. across was, the program. Tell me that such a contrast over here. I mean, my hands have not gotten warm all day. Oh dear. But but I've been uh, I've been working at the uh, college uh, this semester, and uh, we're going to be uh, dipping into some of your teaching later on in the program when you're going to be talking about memes. So we'll we'll come back to that yeah, in a moment. Now, G- GK, GK. Now I understand that you are having this heat wave, and uh, according to your Facebook page, you were at 
a place called Byron Bay, and you were looking at the coconuts. <laughs> That's right, Julian. Yeah. No, it's been very, very, very hot here. Um, yeah, I did have a few days down in Byron Bay. Um, beautiful spot, especially for alternate lifestyle people. Probably used to call them hippies in the old days, but it was very, very very nice spot great time great holiday great. went down there with my brother and his family and then our children joined us as well we did it last year so we've done it two years in a row but i'm back here in the bush hut studio mm-hmm. 34 celsius outside um that's about 94 in the old money 94 fahrenheit terrible very hot so i've got the aircon going in the bush hut studio and um not doing too bad julian actually now that i've got the aircon going but can you cope with that? You know, if you go outside and you're brought up with that so you can cope with it? Uh, yes, I guess all of us learn to. But I think, you know, the older I get and uh, having the luxury now of having the air con, um, you sort of retreat to that when you can. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, it's great to speak to all three of you. Thank you ever so much for coming on. And uh, I think Cruzy's not with us yet, so we shall see no. if he happens to turn up. Okay, well, I suppose a bit like last time, we're going to be chatting about things that got our respective goats in the uh, media over the last year or so, or even further than back than that, it doesn't really matter, or things that just generally entertained us, but with more of a concentration on the idea of the media meme this time. Those ideas, whether they're true or false, and uh, often often the latter, that somehow seem to get a life of their own and propagate all over the internet and in the media more generally, sort of go viral, as we say. Um, And our subjects are going to be many and varied, from things like sea monsters through moon holography to Nephilim fairies and everything (laughs) in between. So we'll see how we go. So I think because of the timings, we'll start with Frank. You're going to be talking about the Nephilim fairy concept. So those of us who are not too familiar with that, and I have to confess I am not at all familiar with it, although I think I think I did see a photograph of one once. Mm-hmm. Anyway, please do tell us about it, Frank. Yeah, um, so what got my goat this year, I'm not sure exactly when it was, I think it was sometime in the summer, um, there was a, a video that came on YouTube I saw, and it was talking about like this proof of a Nephilim fairy or whatever. And I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but I do have to name names because it's, I mean, the guy has come out and he's apologized for it and everything. But I'm less wanting to talk about the guy and what he was doing and more of just how like this story just kind of took off and grew into its own monster and then just kind of fizzled out, you know. Yeah. Okay, so Um, what what is it, Frank? What is this (laughs) Nephilim fairy? (laughs) So what was going on was um, L.A. Marzulli had come out um, sometime in the summer with a video, like a teaser to his uh, new Watchers DVD that was coming out. And um, it started off with like um, somebody with a nature cam showing some pictures of these kind of small winged creatures kind of flying around in what looked like night vision video. And, you know, like if you or I were looking at it, we would probably say it's probably just bugs flying around and whatever. Um, but he kind of, and I don't, I don't know if there was some lady uh, who was narrating it. Um, she was narrating and then like kind of like telling a story. And it almost sounded to me like she didn't even believe it. But she was saying that like they were fairies and whatever. And the next part of the video cut to, you know, Marzuli and talking to this, um, like the leading ufologist of uh, Mexico, which I, I don't know what that would be equivalent to. It would be like the Geraldo Rivera of uh, UFOs here or something. I don't know, but... Anyway, he was talking to this guy down in Mexico, like down in 2011. And so they shot this footage down there of Marzuli and this Jaime Musan was the guy's name, like looking at this kind of dried, 
you know, dried corpse of what, what they were claiming was a fairy. And so like he had this video from like 2011 or 2013 and they were like showing it off like it was like a fairy. But then they sat on the footage until like just this year when they were going to release the, the new video. And I think it was because uh, Masan wanted some money to have it, the DNA tested to see what it was. And um, so that's kind of the introduction of the Nephilim fairies. Like, you know, this leading ufologist down in Mexico had said that a boy had found it on the side of the road or something and brought it to him. And so he kept it and had Marzulli look at it. Is that what I saw a picture of, do you think? It looked like a sort of brown, dead, lying on the ground thing with wings. Is that the thing? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that sounds about right. Um, yeah, um, there, there's been other ones too, actually, that that looks similar. So you could have seen a, one that had been around, but yeah. When you describe it as a Nephilim fairy, what's the connection with the Nephilim? Well, yeah, I, I'm not sure where the Nephilim part came in, actually. Um, <laughs> okay. Either through watching the video or just kind of because I was tying it into to the guy presenting it because you know he's always on about the nephilim and stuff it's kind of part of that scene it's kind of yeah kind of all part of the same narrative he had going on and so he was looking at it and he he just he didn't like come out and outright say it was this thing but he kind of like said wow this is like crazy this is and and just kind of hyped it up a lot in in the video and you know they even mentioned at some point um either on a blog post or somewhere in the video that there was a stinger on the tail and then (laughs) yeah it just like got um they just kind of spun the story around and got it kind of out of control. And did this become very popular? Yeah, it got popular enough. There were a lot of comments on yeah. this YouTube video. And I actually kind of had gone under there under uh, one of my pseudonyms and made some comments that it was, you know, obviously a fake. And then, you know, Marzuli, I think maybe had mentioned something. And a lot of people came to his defense right away really quickly. Like, oh, you know, he, like there were just tons of comments. Oh, thank you for doing this great work, you know, for being the watchman on the wall. And yeah. if anyone brought any sort of criticism to the claim, it was just yes. like you're an outcast, you know. Yes, yeah, so that, that's a very interesting phenomenon, that one. Yeah. And it seems to be related to this idea that if you are exposing some supposed truth that is particularly wacky, then somehow you are very brave and you are the one who's telling the truth that nobody else is prepared to reveal. And uh, that's almost a recipe for disaster, isn't it? Because it does encourage people to create the most clickbaity kind of things they possibly can in order to put it out there. Yeah. I I find that quite a sad phenomenon, actually. And he has actually backtracked from this whole business now. Is that right? He he has yeah because um after the DVD his watchers DVD was released and the um I think eventually after the uh, test results did come back he, he did actually to his credit I give him huge credit for this for um, coming out and I think he released another video and probably a blog post saying that yeah this was actually you know a fabricated creature it was um, found to be a mutilated bat carcass or something and. Uh, <laughs> like all all of this happened faster than like the the, the claim came out and then what was discredited before i could even compile this into a a blog post to debunk it right oh frank you 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 missed a a moment there i think we should have had jeff at that moment oh yeah (laughs) jeff jeff is kind of sleeping over there he's uh just just tell everybody that uh... <laughs> could could you explain to people why that is called Jeff? Yeah, so um the same picture of Jeff Goldblum every day um 
I share that picture just about every day when I see it. Um, you do. And so I found a, a clip of him laughing just for my talk with Julian and the Nephilim boys cool. here. So whenever you hear that, that is actually genuinely Jeff Goldblum laughing. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Goldblum, for allowing your voice to be used in this manner. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Can you possibly copyright a laugh? I claim fair use. Yes, absolutely. So what, what would you say, Frank, are the lessons we can learn from this rather bizarre incident? Yeah, I think actually this was a really great example of um, probably the, the best lesson you can learn from this is when somebody's coming out at like uh, claiming something really extraordinary and ridiculous um, or potentially ridiculous, like there's, hey, we found absolute proof of this strange thing, like a fairy or a, you know, a dead alien or whatever you want to throw out there. An, an angel. I've even seen angels an angel. falling from the sky and oh. the corpses on the ground. Yeah, I mean, this is rather contradictory to me. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's so easy to fake things these days and for fakes to get the legwork that they do. And mm. um, there's a lot of people on like blogging on Before It's News and just making YouTube videos. Like, what am I trying to say here is like when somebody comes out making some strange claim, you know, it doesn't hurt to ask some skeptical questions and to cross-examine the claims a little bit. Try to find alternate explanations for the strange phenomenon you've observed. Now, I, I totally like believe that like supernatural things are real sure. and like they happen and whatever. But at the same time, I also realize that you're probably never going to actually prove one, especially if you're like putting together a YouTube video revealing it to the world. I mean, that's almost undoubtedly going to be a fake. So I think my takeaway on this would be just do a little homework and don't be afraid to disagree with it or ask challenging questions. Because if it's a really a true thing, like if Marzulli had really found a real fairy carcass, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, I know, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, me yeah. asking or anybody asking these questions or saying, no, it's a fruit bat or whatever, you know, if it's really a fairy, then then us saying that will be proved wrong later anyways, you know, and then we'll be the ones issuing a retraction. And yeah. Yes, you're right. You're right. A defensive attitude yeah. is quite revealing in a way. It's a sort of insecurity that exactly don't really believe that it's true, but want to believe that it's true. I think GK is going to say something about this as well, this idea of confirmation bias, which we seem to have a tremendous problem with these days. People looking for information that supports their worldview and not being self-critical. Um, that, that is quite a problem. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, yeah, just you had like this huge claim come out and then people hyping it up or saying could this be the thing from the abyss and revelation whatever and asking those kind of questions and then getting the audience all worked up over it too and then then everybody's defending the claim and not even thinking critically and then when it was revealed to be a hoax and everybody just looks stupid you know <laughs> and I, I think in a way actually to kind of bring it home a little bit more concretely you know when we do jump to have this confirmation bias as you say we, we kind of discredit our witness for Christ too you know if a bunch of us Christians are holding on to this obviously fake thing, you know, and it uh, comes out later as a fake, then the rest of what we hold on to is not going to be looked at any more favorably, you know. Mm. That's one of the reasons why I, you know, I'm so yes. critical of it, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So that's the whole reason, isn't it, for what you do at Ancient Aliens Debunked. You're not in the business of just debunking things for the sake of it. You're, you're concerned about the effect that it's having on people, even on Christians. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because, um, you know, a lot of the stuff for 
evidence for ancient aliens has been getting used or sometimes is used by people in the uh, what they call the Christian fringe to basically prove Nephilim. I mean, it's like you're using the same arguments, the same types of uh, logical fallacies, but now you're using it to prove your viewpoint, which is not any better Mm-hmm. than the ancient aliens one, yeah. Yes, yes, indeed. There are some pitfalls there, aren't there? I noticed yeah. as I was straining to watch some of those ancient alien episodes. Um, and I, I enjoyed the first one, but uh, <laughs> after that, it was a bit of an effort. Um, so I'm looking forward yeah. to having that conversation with you, Frank. Yeah, I, I would love to. I actually, unfortunately, bought uh, season one on DVD when I was helping throw some material together for Chris um, when he was making the movie and, like... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I sat through the the whole first season, and it it ran out of steam uh, part way through. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise, man. Yeah. Okay, uh, gentlemen, um, does anybody else have any anything that you'd like to contribute with respect to this subject? I, I just wanted to say, um, Julian, maybe I didn't know that uh, Frank was going to broach that topic, and you know, as you sort of mentioned. I'll be talking about something similar, but in a more general way. But we didn't put our heads together and say, hey, let's do this. It's just something that this confirmation bias thing, you know, I've been thinking about it for a few months now. So I just wanted to say that we didn't put our heads together and say, let's no, do this absolutely. as a thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was just generally mm. this idea of the meme and things that, as I always say, got our goat. So, yeah, it was, yeah. It was that vague. Yeah, it's interesting how these things do work out sometimes. Yeah. Cliff, are you still there? Aha, we lost Cliff. It just sounded like somebody was walking away from the microphone then, actually. <laughs> huh? so it sounded like somebody was walking away into a different room. <laughs> that was just Jeff. Oh, I, I, walked, uh, I walked to the fridge and made a glass of water, actually. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> He'll make some popcorn for us soon, don't worry. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got all kinds of snacks here. Uh, <laughs> 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 Uh-oh. Hmm. Uh, I guess we've lost Cliff, have we? I think so, yeah. I can't get him back, mate. The men in black oh, did it. Oh, what a shame. Just give me oh. a second, I'll try. So, while you do that, I'll take a very short bathroom break. Back in a moment. Okay. And while I was gone, GK and Frank took the opportunity to, well, talk behind my back, which uh, I suppose I should have expected. And they wondered whether I was going to include any of their comments. Well, I shall include some of their comments. So here are some highlights from the things they said while they thought I couldn't hear. I'd like to take this opportunity to um, thank all you listeners for listening to Like Flint Radio. And uh, hooroo. <laughs> you think he'll hooroo, mate. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, uh, thanks yeah. everyone for tuning in to Like Flint Radio. So that's Frank and GK both engaging in blatant advertising self-promotion. Thanks very much, chaps. And then we had this. And Julian, like he asks like critical questions of people and like kind of challenges their thesis, but he's like always sounds like really polite doing it. You know, it must be the British accent, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, which was very nice of you, Frank. Thank you very much. But then Frank ruined it by saying this. It's good for sounding really polite or really evil, depending on which kind of movie you're in. So, um, <laughs> you know, if you're in Star Wars, you know, it doesn't sound so good. But if, like, you know, you're interviewing people, though, well, then you sound, like, really cool. So, it's um, a good point. Oh, well, I suppose I let you off for saying that, Frank. But then, cool or evil, depending upon the context. Hmm, a funny kind of compliment. 
So let's hear some comments which are really a window upon their souls. And welcome back to the uh, Ancient Aliens Debunked Podcast. Um, we'd like to thank you all for listening and um, just would like to take this time to let you know we do um, accept all forms of gold uh, donations. Um, PayPal. We take PayPal, PayPal sometimes is acceptable. Um, green that. paper from your parents' wallet is also acceptable. Yep. So there we are, their true natures revealed. We really know the kind of characters we're dealing with, and neither of you thought I was going to include that, did you? Well, there we are. Perhaps I'm not cool, perhaps I really am evil. <laughs> well, I guess as we seem to have lost Cliff, I suppose it's my turn, mm -hmm. so I shall go with a couple of things that I've got here. So, I mean, the things really that bother me, I keep on coming across this moon hologram theory. Also, this whole everything is fake meme, which seems to be cropping up everywhere these days. So I'll, I'll go first of all with this hologram thing. I don't know whether most people have heard about this. Um, it seems to be related to the flat earth meme that we talked about last year. It seems to be taken fairly seriously by, well, some people anyway. And I'm taking my clues today from somebody called Crow777, spelt C-double-R, for some reason, OW777 has this uh, YouTube channel, which he calls the Research Channel, um, has about 70,000 followers, <laughs> amazingly. Anyway, what he shows is a kind of telescopic video of the moon showing what he calls is a lunar wave. He doesn't call it a hologram, but that is still the idea. It's this image that is fabricated in some way. And uh, the telescopic image shows a kind of image refresh, a kind of wave that propagates across the moon, a kind of line of distortion that sweeps across the image. And uh, the narrative is that this is highly suggestive that the moon is not what we think it is. It's fabricated in some way. And it just took me two minutes to find a plausible explanation I mean, I'm not saying this is the explanation for it, but, you know, it is a possible explanation and it only took two minutes to find it. And this particular presenter shows a, a video of an aeroplane flying beneath the moon and it's followed by this layer of air that just goes across the image of the moon and produces exactly the same phenomenon. And, you know, I just think to myself, how can you get so worked up about one piece of supposed evidence for something that is completely contrary to the way we look at reality when you only just you know, shift across two, three minutes and find something that gives you a more rational explanation for it. Again, not saying that is necessarily the explanation, but you know, which, which is it more rational to believe, you know, that the whole world is lying to us or that there could be an innocent explanation, especially when there is one, at least, lying conveniently to hand, you know. Um, so that niggles me, that kind of thing niggles me when I suppose it comes back to this kind of maximal confirmation bias that somehow people want to believe something for whatever reason it is so badly that they will just hook onto one dubious piece of evidence and construct a worldview out of it. I don't quite know why people do that. Um, there are all sorts of things that are related to this, again, on his channel. Apparently, satellites that are rocketed up into space, well, apparently that doesn't happen. The space agencies are all lying to us, like with the Flat Earth. And he has a, an eyewitness with pictures being shown on the video. And this eyewitness says that they've seen satellites being launched by rockets supposedly into space. But as she looked, she could see that the rockets did not carry on upwards. They go in a kind of arc back towards the ground. And so therefore, 
all the rockets that are supposedly shot into space, they're there just for show to convince us that, in fact, the space agencies are right and there really is this big universe, but, in fact, it's not the case. Because, look, you can see they come back down to Earth after all. And, again, it took me two minutes to find a possible answer to this. <laughs> you know, it's the, same, it's the same thing. And I just went to Stack Exchange Physics, and there's a question there. Is there any disadvantage to sending rockets straight up? several answers and, and one was satellites are not only about 300 kilometers above the surface of the earth they're also orbiting for a low earth orbit satellites need to travel some 7,000 meters per second horizontally in order to orbit because getting to an orbit is a combination of getting through the atmosphere getting up to the desired height and getting the desired orbital velocity rockets do not simply go straight up <laughs> so yet again you know it's that whole thing of finding one little supposed anomaly and hooking onto it and deconstructing your whole worldview and taking on a whole other worldview and i find that mentality quite difficult to understand actually and I, i'm not sure that I'm not sure that at that level of things, that really is fully rational. Um, I mean, I'm quite soft on people on this kind of thing. I may not sound it as I'm speaking here, but, uh, you know, I think the, the accusation that people are irrational in what they believe is far too often said too quickly. And I actually think the burden of rationality in our beliefs is quite difficult to assess, actually, because there are people who believe things for all kinds of reasons, um, they may be false things that they believe, but they may have all sorts of things that condition them, and that goes for all of us to some extent, in, in our backgrounds, that actually make it rational for us to believe things that are false. Now, that may sound strange, but you know we have a certain duty towards our beliefs. But if we are conditioned to a certain extent to believe things that are false, then we are still fulfilling our moral duty towards our beliefs if we believe things that are false, if you see what I mean. But there comes a point where I think we're not doing duty with respect to our beliefs when we don't have those conditions that are, that are justifying us, as it were. And I think in this kind of situation... You know, to believe something like we're being lied to about the whole universe because of one little piece of evidence like this, which seems to be an anomaly, that is that really fulfilling the conditions of rationality in our belief? I, I can't see that. I think that's bordering on irrationality. It's a very difficult thing to discuss, <laughs> but uh, that, that's how I think about it. But but I think, Julian, we all love a mystery, and I think that's part of it. Mm. And that's why, you know, we all love fiction, uh, whether it be books or media, you know, movies. We love the mystery. We love to hunt for something and discover something. I, I just wonder if it's that part of the human nature that yeah. that we tend to lean towards that way. You know, all of us do it. Yes, I think that does play into it. Mm. Yeah. So again, that that will be something that mm. just take the edges off my criticism. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think that's right. Um, but again, I'm not going to go so far as to say I think that lets people off the hook because what kind of upbringing and what kind of experience of the world would you have such that you would say to yourself, I find something that's exciting and seems a bit like this great mystery, this great adventure, but... Mm really my better judgment should tell me that it's clearly false you know mm. i don't think that lets people off the hook I, th I think sometimes it's an ego thing too perhaps um i think actually it was chris white who had mentioned that is like you know if you're exposing some grand conspiracy you kind of get like this almost like a high off of being the one to expose and then like you get like this yeah. you know kind of elitist uh feeling because like oh i'm in the know and i'm giving this information to everyone else and it sounds like that's what Crow is doing. <laughs> but 
I, I totally agree, actually. As I said yeah. to Chris when he came on TMR uh, a couple of years ago, that I had about 20 years ago, probably about 25 years ago now, and I was a Christian at the time, I'd looked into Rosicrucianism and theosophy, just as of trying to educate myself about other worldviews and things. And I really got into Rosicrucianism, actually. I found it quite fascinating. It's, it's, I like the complexity of it. But there was this hiddenness to it all, a way of looking at the world that was hidden from everybody else. And I remember feeling puffed up mm -hmm. just by having this knowledge that I mm -hmm. knew the vast majority of people did not have. Even though I believed it to be false, I still liked that feeling. So I could well imagine that there are people who you know, actually do believe that kind of worldview and at the same time also feel, ah, you know, I know the, the real truth about everything. And of course, it's part of that worldview not to be too open about it. You're supposed to hold that to yourself because you're one of the adepts, you know, you're one of those who, who's enlightened and quite the opposite mentality to the Christian one, I would say, which is, you know, the truth is as clear as daylight. You share it with everybody. Um, so, yeah, I can absolutely, I, I've experienced that kind of feeling mm. within myself as well, yeah. Yeah, I think I have too. When I was into uh, conspiracy theories more, maybe about 10 years ago, getting all like the adrenaline rush of, you know, discovering like this new conspiracy theory. Oh, well, if it's true, well, then blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, but I know, you know, it's like yeah. all these people are asleep and I know. Yeah, it is a bit of a pitfall for, I think, everybody in the so-called truth movement, which I'm going to have something to say about in, in, mm -hmm. in a minute. Obviously, we need to seek the truth, and we're going to find lies all over the place. That is true, but I, I don't believe that everything is a lie, but we're going to find lies in all kinds of places. And when, as we do that, there is that temptation to think, yes, I'm one of the awake people, therefore I'm somehow superior, and I think that's something to be avoided. Yeah, I totally agree. Cliff, are you back? I think Cliff is kind of back, yeah. <laughs> you are. Uh, hey, he's, oh, he's hey. really back. Hey, hey, hey. You're just in time, Cliff. Well, yeah, I was <laughs> kind of floating out there. <laughs> well, before before we lose you, yes. <laughs> before we lose you again, Cliff, um, could you tell us something about the very concept of meme? Because you say that you've been doing something with your university students on this subject. Oh, sure. So perhaps you could share with us about it. Yeah, because a lot of people don't even know what they are, really. Uh, well, when you get into like uh, linguistics and uh, symbolism and uh, semiotics and stuff like that, there's all these different concepts that, that arise, and, and and there's a lot of similarities between certain ones of them. Can I just check with you, Cliff? When, yeah. when you say when you say semiotics, that's the study of signs, isn't it? The information that signs give us. Yes, yes, signs and semantics. Right. You know, because what we're talking about is meaning. Yeah. So what you have uh, when you get into this whole area is uh, there, there's a certain number of uh, emic units. And they're the smallest pieces of things uh, like, for example, a phoneme, right, is the smallest piece of sound that we make when we try to speak. You know, like ah or th, right, or th. Those individual sounds are phoneme. They, and you connect those together to make words that convey a meaning. And we started getting into the meaning. You get the seam, which is a small part of a semantics, but the actual smallest part is a semime. And there's like seven of these, and, and each one of them shows a different way that you can convey meaning with words. And in an analogy, uh, you have genes, right, which are the smallest unit of uh, genetics. And then what happened is, is Richard Dawkins wanted to explain 
how the concept of God could come about through a uh, Darwinian kind of model of, of uh, evolution. Yeah. And so he came up with the term meme. It was originally pronounced meme because semim was originally pronounced semime. And what he was proposing is that uh, ideas uh, or thoughts or the smallest pieces of culture, which, you know, words are part of culture, that these memes would be the smallest conveyors of ideas. And this is where it kind of overlaps with semiotics, because the semime, you know, is the smallest piece of uh, semantics. But you also have a sign, which I, I would say a sign is a developed meme. Do you follow what I'm saying here? A sign is a developed meme. See, a meme can be, it imitates something else, okay? And it doesn't necessarily convey a meaning, but it does tend towards that, okay? And a sign is where a full concept is is developed into these connections. Can I just check with you? You asked me, do I understand what you mean? So let me check that my understanding about this is right. Yeah, go ahead. When we get right down to basics about this, my understanding Mm -hmm. of a sign is that it's a convention. It's the product of a convention between two or more communicators. Oh, good. Yes. So they decide between them, this, whatever it is, stands for whatever meaning they wish to give to it. So it's a convention that is understood between two people or Mm -hmm. more than two people. So apart from that, it may have no connection with the meaning. It's just something that is created as an agreement. Mm -hmm. So the connection then with the meme is that it's connecting to this pre-existing idea, which is the meme. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, that's pretty good, actually. One of the things that we do with connecting words to what they are supposed to mean, we have to agree on that. And that, that's exactly where that comes from with the idea of the two communicators or more. Because language has to be something that is agreed upon. And so does an actual symbol or a sign that has to be agreed on. Even a code. These things need agreement, kind of established between the communicators. A meme is something, though, that is a piece of the culture that may or may not have any kind of a symbolic attachment or any kind of associative uh, connection, but it potentially does, okay? Hmm. So what happens is, is that people will infuse a certain amount of meaning into that thing and connect these ideas to it. Hmm. For example, one of the popular means is uh, Gene Wilder is uh, Willy Wonka, you know, looking at the camera quizzically, right? Like, Oh, okay, so you really think that, eh? (laughs) Have you (laughs) considered this? (laughs) You know, this kind of thing. And and you can almost hear his voice with it, you know, because (laughs) it was a very good picture, and he was a very expressive comedian. Some people don't even have a clue who he is, but they see that look on his face, and they, they have associations that come from themselves, you know, that they connect to it. Mm. And with the interchangeability of things that are said with it, See, this is what makes it a meme. A meme is a sign that has not developed fully. Right. right. Do we have an idea then of, as it were, a collection of memes that will be in people's minds? Oh, absolutely. And then there will be, say, a sign that, like you say, the picture of Gene Wilder is in a sense a sign if somebody sees it. Right. And that triggers the memory of all this collection of memes that is in the mind. They're not necessarily thought through rationally at all. They're, they're just no. there in people's experience, and it just triggers triggers all that lot. Exactly. The sign has, a, has an agreed-upon meaning, whereas a meme doesn't even necessarily have a meaning in and of itself. 
but something can be ascribed to it. Just because we're communicative creatures, we will pick upon that thing and maybe even read into it things that maybe we shouldn't. You know, I had arguments with some of the people in the uh, Hebrew roots. Uh, sure, just a minute. Before, before we get to that, Clifford, I just want to sort of link to something that's been said. I mean, I'm thinking about a few moments ago when I was talking about this picture that was being shown with respect to rockets supposedly not going into space. Right. And that, that was functioning as a sign. It was there on the video, and mm-hmm. you could see this bright... Um, contrail, I suppose. You could see it going in an arc back down, supposedly down towards the Earth and crashing into the sea or whatever. You didn't see the crash into the sea, of course, because mm-hmm. all it was doing was gradually going horizontal and going off into space. But the narrative was that that's not what was happening. Right. So you saw this sign, this picture. And one of the things, based upon what you've been mm-hmm. saying to me just now, uh, one of the things that I'm thinking is that people who see that picture are associating with it a whole collection of memes to do with whatever it is they've been looking at and looking into previously, such as flat earth theory or hollow earth theory or whatever it might be, presumably importing that into this sign that they see. So it's not, I'm not quite right when I said, oh, you know, they see one anomaly and they're sort of hooking into that and changing their worldview. In fact, what's going on is they're hooking onto that and they are importing all of these memes that have been floating around that they've been rather uncritically taking on board. Mm-hmm. And the whole lot is crashing through that particular sign that they see. Well, it's not a sign, but it is, it is an associative tool. Right. A sign can develop from a certain amount of means. See, that's why you got to go back to Dawkins and his agenda of trying to disprove the existence of God. And when you think of it in that terms, that he is trying to show how the belief in God could have emerged, kind of come out full-blown, because that's kind of what we see when we look at the archaeological record these concepts of gods and goddesses and everything else, uh-huh. it emerges pretty much full-blown, in a rather sophisticated manner, no less. I've, I've been to Gebekli Tepe, which is supposed to be the oldest temple in the world. It's very sophisticated. Yeah. Even the structure of the place is sophisticated, yeah. and, and, and people are just astounded that so-called primitive people mm. could come up with such an idea. So what are you saying? This goes against the kind of evolutionary concept with respect to the development of religion? Oh, absolutely. It dumps it on its head. Right. So he kind of anticipated, I suppose, that the archaeological record would actually back up the idea that religious thought was very advanced at a very early stage in human development. So I have the feeling that that's what it was, that he was anticipating this. And, and I don't think it's very effective in disproving the existence of God. What it is interesting about it is it's another way of explaining how symbols can come about, signs and symbols. Um, there's a fellow, Jakobsen, he was a, a great linguist, and he worked with Echo. What he posited was you had the actual thing, you know, like a lion, for example, and we associated the word lion with this creature, okay? And it conveyed the meaning to people when you'd say that word. Yeah. Now, with time and other associations that we'd made, for example, lion is considered regal for some reason. So then you would have this extra layer now of a lion, the creature, and the lion as a symbol of a king. And we could take the lion in a different direction. So the color is gold, okay, and astrologically you have Leo. And and each of those develops in its own way, and they interconnect too. And these layers of meaning build up. 
Well, what Dawkins might have hit upon, and, and, and rather effectively, is how the connection between a word or a picture or a slogan, how these things build on other things that we associate with them, and we create from them things like codes and signs and symbols mm. and everything else. Cliff, yes, Cliff, just just yes. just stop you a second because I think I think Frank is going to bed. Is that right, Frank? Uh, yeah, the fairies are curtaining me off, so <laughs> <laughs> it's getting really really late for you there, is it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I, thank you ever so much for joining us, Frank. It's been very interesting to hear about the fairies there. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry to interrupt you, Cliff. <laughs> Um, oh, no, that's look, fine. Look forward to speaking to you about Asian aliens. Very good, me too. I hope the fairies will have me back by then. <laughs> There's associations I have with that Nephilim fairy that just crack me up. Okay. <laughs> and I shared a couple of those videos with Frank. Usually uh, fairies, they're heavyset dudes that are badly shaved and smoking cigars and wearing a tutu. It <laughs> 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 <They> just... <laughs> I can't help it, but it's just so funny. Uh, some of the things when he was writing about that cracks me. Cliff, huh? Cliff, there is one big yes. problem with it all because, as you know, fairies wear boots. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> I think I posted that one too. <laughs> So what are you saying, GK, that if you see a fairy that's not wearing boots, that shows it's not genuine? I, I, think, I think that's roughly... I'd have to think it through a little bit more. It might be a bit of a meme. Let me, let me work on it. <laughs> well, you know, that's kind of how it works, that you have these pieces that float around and you start putting them together because you associate them. And it becomes yeah. something greater over time. And our um, job is to keep so yeah. how to keep control of the situation, isn't it? Not let those vague associations masquerade as meanings for us. We've got to try and keep control well, of them. Yeah, I suppose so. Mm. In as much mm. as we can, but there's always this drift. The drifting comes from the fact that each of us associate different things. Is there an objective meaning? Yes, there is. Are we capable of digesting it without drifting off with something else? sometimes even able to embrace the actual concept it might be beyond us but it's if there's any kind of you know lesson for us to take away from this i don't know whether you agree but that it would be that surely we have to try to sort of keep tabs as much as we can on the the meanings that we ascribe to things that we see and hear and we can't do it perfectly as you've just said we can't do that but if we sort of give up on it and say well you know we we can't really know the essence of anything and we just sort of let it all freely float in front of us then we're going to be subject to all kinds of manipulation oh, absolutely. so we, we have to keep vigilant and check you know what do i think this means what am i allowing this thing that i see in front of me and what am i allowing that to mean am i going beyond what reasonable am i really doing my duty here with respect sure. to this belief so as long as we're doing that as long as we're actually working out that a little bit i think you know it's going to keep us sort of mentally safe sure. and there's, there's a guy i've been listening to quite a bit lately uh, his name's hexenhammer 666 the guy's an occultist <laughs> but he's uh -huh. you know i know where he's coming from and right. his explanation of the occult is rather very specific but he is very clear about how this whole mimetics, okay, the meme science, works very closely with uh, certain propagandistic uh, techniques. You know, and what he has to say is really interesting, because when I was younger, I, I was into the occult. 
And, you know, you get into, the, like, the chaos magic and stuff. That, that borrows heavily from mimetics. Hmm. Um, uh, coming back to what you said about propaganda and how that makes use of this phenomenon of the floating meme, etc., are we not indeed seeing this presented in front of our faces at the very moment? Oh, yeah. This whole sort of collection of memes to do with Putin and fake news and hacks and all these things that are just words and vague ideas and everybody is just using these and barking them at each other seems to be a perfect example of how propaganda it it really is and you know the thing is is we also keep in mind that propaganda is not necessarily lying and really it's not necessarily a bad thing i mean we all do it you know when we talk to people we tend to emphasize our good Mm. qualities and try to play down our bad ones yes but we normally think of propaganda as claims that are made that are if you really do think about them, they're obviously false <laughs> and are done deliberately right, to right. manipulate with nefarious intent. That's what we normally think of. Aha. We have lost Cliff, I think. I think we and might. That's not the first time. No. We lost him before. Yeah. Uh, no, no matter, because I think we, we had a lot of interesting uh, pretty, things pretty there incredible from you. Oh, you come back again. Uh, what, what you're doing is, is you're taking... Cliff, ideas. Cliff, I'm afraid... Cliff, I'm afraid is there we... a way you can bring it home, sort of underline it? Because... Um, I know how you operate, so that's why I knew yeah, how to follow uh, you. So do you have a way to underline all of that? What, about the propaganda? Uh, about sure. the memes in general, because I think the point you made about them not being objective was great. Like, you might see one one way, and, and you might send it to me and think I'm getting the same thing out of it, but that symbol or that signal's not getting through to me the way that you're seeing it. And I thought that was a great point, and I yeah. think you did too, Julian, didn't you? Mm, absolutely, yeah. Well, so I just wanted well, to. Think- okay, I see what you mean. Well, the best way to protect ourselves is to objectify, and we can't be completely objective. We humans are not capable of that. God is, but we aren't. See, that's one of the things that intelligent people are often very easy to fool because, well, they get lazy for one thing, but they also think so well of themselves that they don't become objective. Okay, so what do you mean by objective here, Cliff? You say we need to objectify. So what is it that we well, have we to have do to achieve that? For one thing. Sorry, we have to get out of ourselves. So right. When we objectify, we're reaching out towards what is is tangible to other people. Right. Would this be in the general parlance? We have to be critical realists. Sure. Yeah. So. I mean, my understanding of that would be to say something like, you know, I recognize I've got all sorts of prejudices and baggage that I bring along with me. That makes it very difficult for me to be objective about what I'm looking at. But as long as I'm aware of that baggage, I can consult that and say, now, just a minute, am I really being objective here? Oh, yeah, that's influencing me this way. That's influencing me that way. And by being aware of that, I'm in a better position to judge things more accurately than otherwise. Absolutely. Mm. When we do realize our own limitations, we actually see better. Yes. Totally agree. But we have to get out of ourselves also. Mm. When we are so busy with subjective ideas, even if they are true, mm. we're not getting outside of ourselves, and we're not really engaging the real world. And that can be very uh, problematic. Mm. We're too busy with ourselves. Yes, it's a, a necessary step in order to use critical thinking, really, isn't it? Yeah, and not only that, it's part of the gospel message. Mm. Lose yourself, you gain everything. Yeah, and I suppose really what you're saying does connect with what we were talking about, confirmation bias. 
earlier on, because if you're still locked up within yourself, then you're going to be more subject to an unhealthy confirmation bias. Sure. Well, not only that, you can be controlled by that. Yeah, indeed. That bias is very easy to control. Yeah. That goes back again to where propaganda is effective. Why is it effective? Well, because it puts you back to sleep. Mm. It allows somebody else who's aware to manipulate you to do what they want you to do. That's that's a kind of a, a rather sinister type of magic, you know. I mean, yes. if you think of magic as the projection of the will as what magic is intended to accomplish, then yes, you would have to consider it a type of magic. Yes, that is very interesting. And yes. we have to ask ourselves about will. You know, is it our will or is it somebody else's will? Is it God's will that we should be accomplishing? Mm. Well, indeed. I mean, it really is one of the main messages, is it not, of the alternative media. And I'm going to have things to say by way of criticism of the alternative media. But there are a lot of things that that uh, media does very well. And one of the things that it does oh, well is to call us to being masters of our own will, to be aware that we're being propagandized, that we are under this anthropological magic (laughs) that people are doing against us by way of propaganda, and we we need to be in control of our own thoughts, which brings us straight back to this notion of confirmation bias, where if we're letting that get a hold of us, then we're not really in control. Our subconscious almost is in control, and that could be controlled by somebody else at arm's length. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to come to you, GK, because you wanted to say something along these lines connected with a particular example which you've just typed out for me actually which i don't know how you <laughs> pronounce it but the the thylacine or, or something um do you want to tell us uh, about what that is and how that connects to the concerns that you have about this i do i want to talk about thylacines we'll get to that in a, a second i just want you to know that while you guys are enjoying the lovely cool and a bit of snow up there on the top side of the world i'm here <laughs> chewing on a lovely bowen mango My wife just told me that um, snow has been reported in Tasmania, and I'm going to be talking about Tasmania in a second because we're going to talk about the thylacine. You've just been to Tasmania, haven't you? That's right, and that's why, you know, when you asked me, did I want to come on the show and what did I want to talk about, I've been thinking about confirmation bias. You know, when we get into a position where we want something so much to be so that we sometimes we get a little bit carried away with ourselves. So Mm. while I'm talking about this, think about mysteries like Bermuda Triangle, uh, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, things like that. Like, I love mysteries, right? And I do believe in conspiracies. There are some conspiracies out there. So I'm I'm down that track somewhat already. But having said that, I'm very, very cautious, more cautious now than I was before, because I think one of the things we have to be careful of when we get a little bit carried away with ourselves with these sort of mysteries is that we can tend to lead others astray, you know, with them. And, you know, we can jump on a bandwagon, get down the road so far before the wheels fall off and we've got other people on the bandwagon with us. So I just want people to have that in mind while I'm talking about this topic I was listening to this podcast. I can't remember what it was. I listened to so many, uh, but it was something outside of our circle totally. And they were talking about this topic and they were saying that people sometimes want something so much to be true so badly that they'll even fabricate evidence. When I say evidence, that's an air quote. So they'll fabricate something. Uh-huh. so that you will believe it's true. Now, a very broad example like this, uh, this is what I was thinking about when they were talking about it, was you might watch a police movie, for example, where a police officer will know, you know, suspect A is absolutely guilty of the crime, but he can't prove it 
uh, legally. So he'll fabricate some evidence because he's so certain that it's true, but he'll fabricate some evidence and then have the bad guy locked up for what he's done anyway and no harm done because he was guilty. I'm saying this as someone who... Uh, I don't mind. I've said this before. My wife and I have seen what we believe to be a Yowie. We call them Yowies down here. That's the Bigfoot or the Yeti. I can't <laughs> prove it, but we've seen one. But I've also yeah, seen yeah. what's regarded as a classic UFO with my whole family being present. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I understand these things and I understand people, you know, sort of um, being interested in them. I think I said it earlier. We like mysteries. We want to be thrilled. We want to be have a mystery. We want to think that we can solve it, by the way. A lot of us are into that so that we can yeah. solve it. Um, can I just butt in there? Yeah, sure. Because, you know, you brought up those two things, but you then said, ah, but that's a mystery. So it seems to me that what you're not doing, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to be that you're not importing, mm. like we were saying earlier, all these memes and saying, ah, well, it means this, this, or this, and I've got this big worldview that I'm going to share with you based upon this supposed evidence. You're not saying that, are you? You're saying we've seen these things. That's a mystery. There's more to discover mm. here. But you seem to be stopping at that point. Well, well, I don't have the evidence. Now, the thing with confirmation bias, it's where you interpret new evidence, right, to confirm your already held theories Uh or beliefs, right? But the key word there is evidence. Now, I've just said that I've seen a Yowie. I've seen a UFO, the the classic UFO, but I don't – well, actually, I do. I took a photograph of the UFO, but even that couldn't be regarded as evidence, you know, Um, because Mm. I still regard that photograph as somewhat subjective. I'm not sure that evidence would stand for many other people other than those already in that grab bag of mysteries and they might say, oh, yes, look, um, GK's got a photograph of UFO, therefore that proves what I believe about UFOs, but it's not necessarily so. What I wanted to do with this topic was to use a real-world topic to sort of explain what I'm trying to get at. Okay. Recently, I was down in Tasmania, as you mentioned. But I want to talk about Tasmanian tigers or the thylacine, right? When we were down in Tasmania, we were very, very fortunate to attend a lecture at a grade two quarantine and breeding center for Tasmanian devils because the devils are threatened now. They've got this facial tumor disease that's taken them down to, I think, I think it's about 10% of what they were 10 years ago. So it's a drama. I love wildlife. I think we should conserve as much as we can. I'm into rhinoceros conservation. I'm into preserving Australian native animals and habitat. I think we should do. um, It's going to be horrible if and when they're gone. The Tassie devils are under threat. Okay, so let's talk about the Tasmanian tiger. Let's talk about thylacines, which is really what I wanted to talk about. While I was at this lecture... And the scientist was telling us all about Tasmanian devils. We're in Tasmania. A guy brings up, which always comes up in these situations, about the Tasmanian devil. So I'm going to do a bit of reading here. Um, The thylacine, or Tasmanian tiger, and in Greek it's the thylacinus cynocephalus. It's Greek for the dog-headed pouched one. It was the largest known carnivorous marsupial of modern times, commonly known as the Tasmanian tiger because it has a striped lower back. Or at one time it was called the Tasmanian wolf. It's dog-like in appearance. It's like a medium-sized dog. It weighed around about 30 kilos. Now, I want to read to you a description. You can go and look this up for yourself, but this will tell you what I'm talking about here. Uh, The thylacine was a marsupial that bore superficial resemblance to a dog. 
The most distinguishing feature of this animal were the 13 to 19 dark brown stripes over the back, beginning at the rear of the body and extending onto the tail. The tail was thick at the base and was very stiff. Um, one of the things about them, what distinguishes them from dogs and foxes, is the tail was, it remained stiff no matter what they were doing. So, you know, there's been a number of sightings of supposed Tasmanian tigers. You can go onto YouTube and see them. The key thing is to look for that tail. If the tail remains stiff, you know, it's likely not a fox or a dog. The average okay. nose to tail for length for males was about 160 centimetres. Um, they were largely silent. They did have an occasional terrier-like bark when they were hunting and um, a series of husky barks when they were excited uh, while in captivities. I think I said adults weighed up to about 30 kilos. Um, they were called tigers or wolves, but they were rather timid, to be honest. They had a very bad reputation because of their appearance. If you go on their net, you can see that they can open up their jaws super wide. Now, these guys were the king of the carnivorous marsupials at the time. Fast facts about its decline. 1830s, the Van Diemen's Land Company, Tasmania used to be called Van Diemen's Land, and the VDL, Van Diemen's Land Company, was a uh, chartered company. They introduced a bounty on the thylacine. Now, by that stage, what we know now is that the thylacines were already in decline. They were probably already gone on the mainland and they were already on their way out in Tasmania. 1888, the Tasmanian government puts a price of one pound on the thylacine's head. So they put a bounty on them. Now, this tells me something. By 1909, uh, when they terminated the bounty, they'd only paid out 2,184. So there weren't that many anyway to be shot and collected. There weren't that many available. Uh, by 1910, it was realised that they were very rare. So zoos were started to collect them around the world. Um, interestingly, Julian, 1926, London Zoo bought its last thylacine for 150 quid. Um, <laughs> Quite a lot of money back then, indeed. Well, it would have been pretty penny back in the day, 150 quid. You could probably have bought a small house for that. I would say so, or perhaps a row of them. Um 1933, last thylacine is captured and sold to the Hobart Zoo. Now, 1936, the world's last captive thylacine died in Hobart Zoo, uh, which is in Tasmania, capital of Tasmania, and it's uh, thought that his name was Benjamin, if you're interested. So <laughs> greetings to my nephew, Ben. I'm not sure you're named after the thylacine, but apparently his name was Benjamin. Now, when the last one died in 1936, it's, how's this... How's you this, know my brother, we do call him Taz for the Tasmanian devil. I think you've told me that before. So there's another yeah, Tasmanian Yeah, there's a reason why. <laughs> but um, ironically, in 1936, when the last one in captivity died, they were added to the list of protected wildlife. So it's a case of shut the gate after the horse is bolted. <laughs> Oh, Very sad. By 1986, uh, it was declared extinct. Now, there have been a number of searches done, some by scientific uh, investigation by universities, others more by adventurers type people who are doing it for film, for movies, have gone into the Tasmanian wilderness. And I tell you, it is a really, really rugged and wild part of this country. Very, very beautiful. But there are some places there where, you know, people mm. probably haven't trod yet. It's just that rugged. 
but there have been no definite sightings, you know, for 80 years. You can go onto YouTube and you can see some videos of them on the mainland, and I'm not sure I'm convinced about any of them yet. Here's the point of what I'm talking about. Until I went to Tasmania and went to this lecturer, I believed that there was a chance that they still existed so much. I wanted it to be true so much that I thought, while I'm down there, you know, I'm going to see one. It's going to happen. I'm actually going to discover one, right? I just wanted it to be so true. I wanted that to be true. During the lecture, you know, because the lecture was about Tasmanian devils, but a guy said, listen, the Tasmanian tigers, you know, they're still out there. And this woman was a scientist and it was all facts. And when she laid out the facts about how many breeding pairs it would take over the 80 years since we've seen one, the hundreds and hundreds, I just don't remember the facts she spat out. I should have recorded it, but it was a, it was like six to 800 at least of them to keep them going in the habitat they have now. Uh, are then and what what it's become now, the likelihood of them being in existence is nil, right? So you can't just have a few of them knocking around. You've got to have that minimal you, population. There's got to be a few hundred of them, was her point. Right. And yeah. if there were a few hundred, they would have been found by now. We would have found droppings. We would have found definite, because yes. they're out there all the time right. looking for them. Some of these <laughs> uh, searches are kept secret for a reason, because you know you don't want everyone out there looking for them. So, um, so would you say that you'd be more likely to find Mike Spaulding's shirt? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yes, you would, because I carried that around with me and you would have seen those photos I, I put up of Mike Spaulding's um, Soaring Eagle Radio T-shirt in all those exotic locations in Tasmania. Yeah, it seemed to be everywhere. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah well, we made the most of it. We did go everywhere and saw as much as we could in the time we were there. Had a great time. Great. But there's no actual hard evidence for the existence any longer of the thylacine. I went to Tasmania believing they'd still exist. I went to Tasmania wanting so much for them to exist that I would have, you know, grabbed you, Julian, and said, come with me, we're going to find one. Whereas now I've been presented with the evidence. When we got back, I researched it for myself. I just didn't listen to this one lecture, although this lady knew what she's talking about. I got her ear later on and asked her some one-on-one uh, -on -one questions, which she was very, very good at answering. And I thought, I'm going to do some more investigation. My mind has changed. I don't think they're any longer in existence. I would never try and convince anyone otherwise. I'm now in the sceptic basket. Well, I'm past that. I don't think they exist. And it's a real shame. And for me personally, it's something that, you know, I'm coming to deal with because I do love our native fauna. Uh, the point about this, I'm hoping I'm making the point here, is that we can get into that point where if we're not logical, if we're not objective about a topic, if we get too carried away with ourselves, we can go down a path where we don't seem to make sense, where we get a bit too much on that one topic, but we take other people with us. And then sometimes, as I said earlier, the wheels fall off that bandwagon and everyone's left with egg on their face. And I found the best way to explain that because, you know, I could have talked about the Bermuda Triangle or the Loch Ness Monster, but I found the best way to explain it is something that's very real that you can investigate yourself, but it's also very subjective for me. It is a subjective topic. In fact, now I'm invested in seeing that the Tasmanian devil survives because I, I know what happened to the thylacine. Mm. So does that make sense, mm -hmm. what I'm trying to get yeah. across, Julian? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to be careful of memes that come along. I think we'd be careful of mysteries. Yes, they're exciting. I'm into them myself. I love them. They're great. But I don't think we should make our life about them or drag other people into them unless we're certain of what we're talking about. And I guess that that's my point. Yeah. Well, I think it does make a lot of sense. The way that I would conceptualize it would be to say, you know, there are real defeaters for beliefs. And in this case, you had a defeater that came along in the, mm. in the guise of this scientist who was telling you from her genuine research, yes, you know, that there's no way they can exist because this is just the way nature is. And unless you have something that defeats her research, which you, well, you may have, but unless you have that, then you have no reason not to take what she says seriously. And that's what she has says, mm. defeats your predisposition to believe that these things still exist. And so you've taken the rational route of saying, unless I've got something that defeats what she said, then I have every reason to believe what she says. Therefore, I will no longer look for these things which very probably do not exist. So it seems completely it, rational. What you've done there is critical thinking. Right. And, and yeah. yes, exactly. I think that that's a good way to encapsulate it. And so what I'm saying is let's take what you've just said there, Julian, and apply that to any number of things like fairies or ghosts, Loch Ness Monster <laughs> yeah. or Yowies, you know, any anything like that. And unless you can get evidence, then it's got to stay in that mystery basket. You know, I'm not sure. I don't want to convince you of anything. I need to be careful. I don't want to lead you astray. It's one thing for me to have my subjective view on it. That's okay. And I'm entitled to it and you're entitled to yours. But when I try to convince you of it so strongly, and as I said earlier, I, I don't think too many people do this, but... Some people will go as far as fabricating evidence to prove their point. I, I've got no doubt. Yes, oh, that's yes. right. I mean, yeah. it's got to be the case with that uh, fallen angel thing that I saw. I think it was very early this year. I saw some pictures on Facebook of supposedly angels that had mm -hmm. fallen from the sky. Mm -hmm. And they looked like, well, prefabricated bits and pieces and bird wings and things all sort of put together. And I, and I thought, well, <laughs> for, for, for anybody who really has any understanding of what an angel is supposed to be, it's not even a physical thing anyway. So there's a defeater straight away for any belief that, that right. could attach to an image like that. Right. That was extraordinary. Well, you right. know, uh, the... Uh, thing that we make fun of the medievals about the question of how many angels can dance on the head of the pin. Do you know what the answer is? Yes. Oh, yeah. What, what is the answer? No, I, uh, I, presumably it doesn't even make sense because they're not material things. Well, actually, uh, the answer is that all of them <laughs> could be dancing on the head of the pin because they're not uh, <laughs> bound by the same rules of space and time as we are. Well, it depends how you wish to formulate your answer, doesn't it? But you could yeah. say that they can't dance because they're not uh, physical entities. But uh, sure. we could argue. Yes, but, that's, <laughs> but that's what the answer was. See, that was the earliest uh, theories of relativity. Mm. The spiritual entities were actually under different laws than uh, physical beings were. I always found that interesting, because we tend to laugh at it, and there's actually kind of a rather interesting point in it. Hmm. Well, there is a tendency to laugh at spiritual things in general, isn't there? Sure. Which sure. I think is very unhelpful, because if we don't have a correct view of spiritual reality, we're going to make false assumptions about physical reality with respect to some questions, without a doubt. Sure. It spills over. The, the thing is, is that we... In the so-called modern era, you know, which is actually began with the basically the Renaissance, uh, 1500s, there's been a tendency to look at the earlier eras and assume that we're superior. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, yeah. the answer to that question was never, has never, to my knowledge, been widely known. 
and I just find that interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, coming back to the, the example that I brought yeah. up, the, the, the reason why I'm, I'm criticising the fallen angel photographs oh, yeah. is not... Because I think, oh, well, nobody can believe in angels yeah. these days. That's ridiculous. They don't exist. Because I believe that angels do exist. I, quite, I don't fully understand mm. what they are. Mm. But nevertheless, that is the biblical testimony. So I believe that there are spiritual entities that really do exist. But my criticism of that is that they cannot be angels because angels are not physical. So my, my criticism of it is coming from a different angle. It's not yeah. that I'm saying, you know, I'm a modern now. I'm, I, I can't believe in these things. It's just no, it doesn't no, even no. fit what it purports to be. <laughs> yeah, and people are so Excited to ascribe a meaning to something. We want to associate everything we see to something we know. We assume UFOs are a technological kind of phenomenon. Hmm. The reason why is because we have currently a technological society. Whereas in, in earlier times, if you saw something in the sky and you couldn't explain it, you might say hmm. it was an angel because that's what they expected yes. to see. It's a good point. So, yeah, and, and so our perception will mold how we come to a conclusion uh, in things. Hmm. We can perpetuate errors very easily. Interesting. Very interesting, <laughs> yeah. Well, this actually segues into something that I wanted to say, because, um, you know, you can take this admonition that we should engage in critical thinking, which I think is absolutely right. We need to even study what critical thinking means when we say that, and that's not as simple as people often think it is. Sure. There's a lot to it. But we can take that so far, certainly in a very overpopular way, where we think critical thinking means to be sceptical of everything to the nth degree. That's not true. Right. And yet that's quite common. Yeah. And that fits very much with this idea of the freely floating meme, because if you're super sceptical about everything, then, well, you've got to believe something, so you might as well just catch on to some particular meme and go for that but i mean that's just a kind of nihilism really of the mind and i think that's really unhelpful mm -hmm. along this line i wanted to bring up this notion this meme itself of the everything is fake kind of thing which i think does kind of feed into this distortion of the notion of critical thinking we say oh you know i'm going to be cynical about everything everything's fake nobody's going to pull the wall over my eyes etc and that, I think, is unhealthy because, I mean, I've said this before on the show, but it, it annoys me because it's just clearly not the case that everything is fake. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. If everything is fake, then even that thought is fake, you know. Um, so, so, I mean, yeah. you know, people often say, well, everything in the mainstream media is fake. Well, that's not true. And people imply that the vast majority of things in the alternative media are true and are better than the mainstream. Well, that's not true. I, it seems obvious to me that there is good and bad in each, pretty much stands to reason. Sure. So we have to use our critical faculties with respect to whatever it is that's coming our way. And this everything is fake phenomenon, um, I mean, the one that really strikes me is this crisis actor meme that's very strong at the moment. <laughs> it doesn't seem, doesn't yeah. matter whatever happens, whatever tragedy happens, you know, whatever event happens, you know, people are saying, ah, there's somebody who's employed to play a part here. And oh, yeah. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I do think, you know, actors, whether professional or not, are used at various scenes, tragedies, political events, etc. Yes. Well, we know they are to give credence to things that are false. I'm quite sure that goes on. But my concern is, this comes back to the confirmation bias thing, that they find an anomaly, and when they hit that anomaly, right. they'll say, ah, oh, this is 100% proof that it's all totally fake. And it might be because they recognize a face and think, oh, that face is like uh -huh. a face that I saw in this other video, so, well, that's a crisis actor. Therefore, it's proof that it's all totally fake. It's easy to get caught up in an enthusiasm, though. But, but yeah, there's, there's also that tendency, like someone that's involved with the Flat Earth, for example, you know, he claims that NASA faked the moonshot. Therefore, everything NASA has to say is false. 
all the science that NASA uses must be false also, that mm. really does become ideological. When a person really latches onto an ideology and isn't willing to change it, or at least alter it where, where new facts come into play, I think that that's where people really started to get into trouble because ideologies are a model of reality. They are not that reality itself. That's the problem. I mean, if you look at the world today, we're still practicing basically the same ideologies that came about in the middle of the 1800s. And we haven't progressed at all. We're stuck in the past and thinking that we're all these brilliant people. Our technology is what's been driving us as far as any real progress goes. But really, we're reactionary to an extreme and willing to kill each other with uh, increasingly sophisticated weapons <laughs> over ideologies that don't really apply to what's really real. And that, again, goes to objectification. Are we able to objectify in a sufficient manner as to realize that maybe the ideas that we're killing each other over aren't necessarily valid? Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes something that helps us to objectify is humor. Yes, I was thinking the same thing. I think it can be very, very helpful. (laughs) And um, I wanted to bring up, I don't know whether you chaps have seen it, but there was a very Mm. funny article not that long ago in the Daily Express. (laughs) Actually, I don't read the Daily Express. Um, I just came across this and I thought that it excellently sort of lampooned this whole business about the the fake media business that's going on Uh at the moment. I don't know what their intention was, but I presume it was to parody the whole situation. This particular story appeared as a news story first on Before It's News, so in the alt media, and that's one of the sites that's on the prop or not list of offenders. (laughs) But it then was picked up by the Daily Express, which is not on the prop or not list. So I'm not sure whether you call that mainstream media, would you, Daily Express? I think you probably would, wouldn't you? But they both ran this crazy story about Vladimir Putin weaponizing a giant squid. Did you come across that story? (laughs) (laughs) So so, so I thought it was wonderful that you had it being put out by the so-called mainstream and by the so-called alternative media. And it initially came from a story written by a guy called C. Michael Forsyth four years ago, Uh, written as a fanciful story, got picked up as a proper news story. Let let me just just give you an example of what it's about. Um, So the Daily Express had the headline, this is on November the 30th, is 14-legged killer squid found two miles beneath Antarctica being weaponized by Putin. <laughs> in the subtitle, a killer, a killer giant squid that can hypnotize its prey and paralyze humans at a distance of 150 feet using poisonous venom is being developed as a secret weapon by Vladimir Putin, a scientist has claimed. <laughs> and the, the story goes on with the most amazing revelations by this Dr. Anton Padalka, who tells us all sorts of things about this expedition. They went to this subterranean lake and they discovered this terrifying creature. And um, it's been covered up by Russian officials who are seeking ways to weaponize and breed the deadly squid. Well, can, can I just say... Um, <laughs> yeah, go on. I'm, 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 I'm looking at that right now. This is hilarious. <laughs> I'm on board with it, Julian. I, I think it's real. I think it's real. 
So you you would agree with the things that this Dr. Padalka supposedly said? He said, we encountered Organism 46B on our first day. It disabled our radio, which we later learned to our alarm was intentional. <laughs> it was also able to paralyze prey from a distance of up to 150 feet by releasing its venom into the water. Tragically, my colleague, a lifelong friend, was killed this way. He tread water wearing a blissful smile as the organism approached him. <laughs> Well, you got a fuzzy picture of an octopus. And one of the other newspapers, the Russian newspaper, talks about Putin's octopus. (laughs) (laughs) It's starting to get into the realms of James Bond, isn't it? I think it's going beyond that. I mean, listen to this. Dr. Padalka said the shape-shifting capabilities of organism 46B sound almost diabolical. It shaped itself into the form of a human diver. He revealed the octopus could also use its tentacles to kill, even after they'd been hacked off its body. <laughs> Dr. Padalka claimed another of his colleagues was killed by a tentacle many hours after slicing it off with an axe. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, later that night it slithered across the ice bank and strangled her. <laughs> <laughs> but if you go back to the original story, and in fact in before its news, before its news had it in, in August, this line was included. I think this line is wonderful. So Dr. Padalka apparently said from the way it adapted each time we changed to our tactics. We became convinced it is at least as intelligent as an average human, Dr. Peralka revealed. Quote, if we were not all PhDs, I fear it would have in the end outwitted us. <laughs> well, that was a fantastic line. Love it. Uh, I just thought it was a fantastic example of uh, obviously fake news appearing right across the spectrum of the mainstream and the alternative, and uh, just being a wonderful send-up of the whole thing. So I, I, you know, I don't quite know what the motive was behind it, but whatever it is, it's my favourite story for the year, without a doubt. That's hilarious. Oh, my goodness. Before it's news, here again we have the meme. You have the squid or the octopus as an actual creature somewhere, but now all of a sudden you have this (laughs) shape-shifting vicious killer. (laughs) 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 It's been weaponized (laughs) by Putin, and now you got Putin weapons octopus and all these ideas all blended together i'm surprised they didn't get trump in there somehow Uh, (laughs) you needed to to get him in there i i I personally think this whole story of the octopus should somehow be injected into the whole controversy about trump and clinton and uh, all the hacking it really needs to be got in don't give the craziest ideas Next thing you know, Obama's going to be talking about it. Like, <laughs> that will be wonderful. Right. Let's Putin, push it. Let's Putin's get there. Putin's going to put it in your glass of water. <laughs> oh, that will be a fantastic oh. start to the year if that happens. Yeah. Well, thank you ever so much, chaps, for coming on. I know we've, we lost Frank earlier, and unfortunately, Cruzy wasn't able to join us. And, of course, uh, you were out for a while, Cliff. That was a shame. But yeah, you come yeah, back in. So thanks ever so much for joining us. And uh, I think as we are now almost approaching midnight, it would be great if we could have a toast together to see in the new year. And I'm delighted to say that Frank joins us again from his deep sleep, kindly waking up for this special moment. And uh, I hope that you have your glasses ready now, because this year I have splashed out on an expensive bottle of Laurent Perrier's Grand Siècle. Um, And I'll just ease out the cork here. There we go. Uh, So if you would raise your your glasses, gentlemen, I shall pour you each a short glass. GK. Nice. Cliff. Oh, sorry about that. Frank. Hey, thanks. There we are. 
Hey. So, cheers. Cheers. Happy New Year to cheers. you all. Cheers. Sorry, that's that's so rude, isn't it, to gargle such expensive Maui. Sorry. (laughs) But I am Australian. You've got to accept that's what you're dealing with, mate. (laughs) We're uncouth down here. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Happy New Year. Thanks, Frank. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Jeff. Wonderful. Can I give a shameless plug? Yes, please do. Um, I'd just like to encourage people to – I'm very, very busy uh, working on my History of the King James Bible podcast series. You can just go to the website, ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com and catch up on the series. Although I'm on holidays at the moment, got another episode coming up soon. Uh, Julian, thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed that. Thanks for having all of us on. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Julian, and um, good to talk to you, Cliff. Yeah. And thank you, Cliff, for coming on. Oh, well, yeah, my pleasure. Great to be on. Great speaking to you again. I've got to go, chaps. Oh, my, um, my cheese and kisses is waiting for me. Thanks, Julian. <laughs> thank you, guys. Thanks, Cliff. Thanks, God Cliff. bless. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah. Hey.